Hey guys, uh, Christopher Sweat here. We had so many technical issues uh, to get this one off the ground, so uh, it's definitely going to be a conversation that's worthwhile. Um, we're going to have a little bit less of a structured conversation than I've been hosting. And I've got somebody here that I um, have, have a strong appreciation for her thoughts on different topics that we'll kind of introduce throughout uh, our discussion here. And uh, I, I'm not sure where it's going to go, but I think it'll, it'll develop uh, over time. And uh, so th this is Sanjana. And uh, Sanjana, if you could just give my audience like, uh, I don't know, uh, just a little bit of an idea of like, uh, you know, who you are and uh, how you spend your time. Sure. Um, thank you for having me. Um, yeah, I think I would recognize myself as a as a thing, to say the least. Um, and I think I am really good with creation. So that's like one of the fun things I try to do is be creative in my own thinking and and just really in life, I suppose. Um, yeah, I'm also a student at Tel Aviv University. I study psychology and philosophy. Um, but also artificial intelligence and Middle Eastern. I think yeah. I really focus on philosophy and psychology more um, and artificial intelligence. Um, yeah, so that's a little bit about me. I spend my um writing and um, yeah, just having phenomenological experience. Yeah. I think that's why um, I'm excited for this conversation. Uh, you know, because I, I label myself as a thinker, I guess, but maybe more because other people have labeled me as such over time. Uh, so I, I wanted to ask you, like, um, uh, you know, we've been in various discussions around uh, uh, philosophy, and you said that's like one of your interests. Uh, is there like a specific philosopher that you think about when you think about philosophy? Uh, yeah, so I mean, like, I, I feel like I, I think about a lot of things, but the one that I've been thinking about a lot is probably Nietzsche these days. Um, and yeah, I've just been studying about him quite in depth, um, you know, his, uh, his, and how his life relates to his uh, philosophy. Because I think you need to understand the history of a philosopher first, like the, the biography, in order to relate their own philosophical works because it has like a direct influence um and i think we can dive into Nietzsche if you want to like his history yeah it's so fascinating because i think like my nature is decently choppy even though i uh, was silly enough to get one of my friends into philosophy but i think i made a mistake because the first book that i told him to read is will to power and i'm sure you have opinions on that um but not, I mean, like, what, what do you think, like, like, you know, obviously there's different ways to look at these philosophers. Um, and, you know, like, the, like you were saying, like the historical context or the period of time that they were writing within or the way that their thoughts being categorized. Uh, but, but, but I, th I think that you probably have some interesting views on Nietzsche. Why, why does Nietzsche stand out to you? He stands out to me because he has this entire 
you know, flirting dangerously. Um, and I think that's what <laughs> motivates people to kind of look at his Dionysian self, um, which is more, you know, affective than it is rational. Uh, that's the like that's the perspective he takes uh, with with his philosophy. Um, and also, like his life was quite interesting. Honestly, like he had an entire period of being a really good writer and a thinker, and then he went mad after 1899 and eventually died in 1800. So a lot of people know him as this crazy philosopher. Um, but that is because, like, his um, when he was four years uh, four years old, his dad died, and it was because like he had this brain tumor, and at that time call it a softening of the brain which we still don't know exactly what it is um, but it was um, it was very tragic um, because I think one of his siblings also died um, one year later and then he had this entire um, like childhood of you know his uh, like his mother and sister being very Christian so he was he grew up in that kind of background and then he went to um, then he went to his co like college and school, and you would see that uh, while reading Bible that he wouldn't he would see Bible as a myth. So he was like, okay, this does not make any rational sense at all, um, and that's where he becomes anti-Christian. So he's always anti-Christianity, like all of his work, like his works around genealogy of morals and. Uh, master morality and say like the slave morality is essentially people who have a religion to cope up with their life because religion kind of satisf satisfies a, a person's um, you know hope and faith so they cope up with life through this hope and faith and it is centered around um, you know like completely denying your particular human desires because it's very spiritual, whereas master morality is just this will to power, in the sense that you are more focused on the goals that you decide for yourself, as opposed to what Christianity or anyone else says. So, you know, generally very interesting philosopher and good uh, work. Fascinating, even just hearing you uh, talk about it. Uh, I think ways, and uh, again, Everyone knows, like, I'm not uh, super well-studied in philosophy, but I spend a lot of time with a lot of types of thinking. Uh, but I feel like um, Nietzsche could almost be credited as, uh, like, the backbone of, uh, like, Western atheism to some degree. Would you say that is a fair, like, way to think? Oh, yes. Um, he was, uh, like, right after he... Um you know, went off school, uh, university to study uh, philology, he became way too much interested in this philosopher who would, who you can call like was a philosopher be before Nietzsche um, in that particular um, uh, era of uh, philosophy. And it was uh, Arthur Schopenhauer and his philosophy was more pessimistic, life denying kind of philosophy. He's known as the father of pessimism. But for Nietzsche, he started relating a lot to Schopenhauer, and this was because of his own tragedy in his life. Um, and that's where he, uh, you know, picked up um, philosophy. And right after, you know, he started doing his biblical studies before philology was when he was like, okay, this entire Bible Christianity is a myth. It's not, it's not factual, uh, you know, it's, it's very um, life-draining in the sense that you're not 
uh, setting up goals for yourself, but you're, you know, following goals that the religion sets for you. Um, and that's where he starts to be anti-Christian. And then he, when, as soon as he studies Schopenhauer, uh, he realizes that, um, of course, life is suffering at a very fundamental level, but um, also more because um, these religion and these institutions set certain goals for you that you have to follow. Um, so yeah, his his philosophy is very anti-Christian from the very start till the end. Fascinating, and I think if if my memory serves me properly, Nietzsche was categorized as one of the existentialist philosophers, even though he butted off that categorization or like denied that he was an existentialist. Is that? I mean, to a certain extent, I guess you can say he's an exist, uh, existentialist. I wouldn't totally, you know, categorize him as such. Um, when I think of existentialists, I think of Sartre and Albert Camus um, and Simon de Beauvoir, like all of these French people uh, in, um, you know, late 18th century. Um, but, um, yeah, I think, I think Nietzsche is just known for his anti-Christian moral philosophy. Um, and like the the book Will to Power um, is was never supposed to be published. It was because like in 1899 and later parts of um, the uh, you know 17th century started to write a lot about um, you know what is the transvaluation of all values, what is a perfect uh, value system, and somewhere bef uh, you know between writing that he realized that ultimately actually there's no objective value system so he considered that it should actually never be published um then another aspect to that was he started uh, to go mad in the sense that you know if you see the book and if you see the, the documentaries that show the will to power in he would make like shopping lists in between uh, his notes and and things like that and he also started writing letters in which he would sign himself as Dionysus or the Antichrist, the Christ himself. So it's a clear indication that he, he went completely off the rails. Um, and that was a reason why, you know, he did not want Will to Power to be published. So it was published by Elizabeth, his sister. And this all started when Elizabeth married Nazi, and uh, and then she became Nazi herself, and so to promote this idea of um, a powerful, uh, superior race, German nationalism, um, she took all of the notes from Will to Power, added her own comments, and sold it to the Nazi people, to Adolf Hitler, to you know promote uh, German nationalism and the superior race. Um, so they took the master morality quite literally. Um, without like seeing as to what it really is. And that's where misinterpretation of Nietzsche begins. Um, and moreover, like the book that he's more famous for, which is Hasburg's Arthurser, uh, Hitler also started using that book to promote, um, you know, his own ideas. And this was because uh, when we look at that book, it's more like um, how do this Uberman, this Superman, the Overman. Um, and it is by going under and cross you know, diving deep into um, the inquiry into yourself, but then also setting yourself and overcoming that suffering um, and becoming this person who is, um, you know, who's powerful in the sense that who's achieving his goals. So, you know, Nietzsche was this person who was like, 
to become the better versions of, of ourselves, we need to achieve more goals. And he was also very focused on the nature and importance of nature. That's something you can see in Jack's history. So fascinating. I, um, I'm studying too. I'm actually studying in Colorado. I'm at CU Boulder. So I'm going back, back to school a little bit later, but, um, but I'm, I'm focused more on the uh, political science. But, but that is allowing me to cross into uh, obviously like um, like political economy or just economics in general. Um, and then a little bit of philosophy. But I think a lot of the philosophy I've been spending time with lately is political and economic. <laughs> um, so I really, I, I really want to read more of uh, Nietzsche's work and I have a list um, that I'm going to start attacking. Uh, later this year. It, so what else? Um, I know that you um, also host a podcast, and I know that you have been building your presence online. What else are you uh, spending your time with? What else is occupying you? So I think I'm very much interested in making this particular thing, but I try to decipher um, so there's no objective truth. <laughs> like uh, we as philosophers, we only try to um, search for an objective truth where we just end up having a subjective, which we think is the objective truth. Um, what I'm trying to like really do in my life, like I have to spend 20 years or so <laughs> to get to that point. Um, model where I philosophy and psychology and artificial intelligence and neuroscience and use like a top-down model of uh, coming to this this particular word, which is very close to objective truth, if not the objective truth in itself. It could be it could be an image, or it could be language in itself. Um, and uh, or as we know it, um, being the subjective, um, subjective truth, but then also objective in the sense that it's collective. Um, so yeah, that's that's something that I'm really trying to do. And very interesting, when I was 18, um, I started seeing um, hypnagogic rituals when I and when I would like go to bed. And these are like patterns um, and lattice patterns and stuff like that. When you're about to about to like fall asleep entirely, it's like a window to sleep. Um, and I would see these visuals and I was like, yo, what's happening? <laughs> you know, what is this? Am I tripping? Like, what is going on? And um, that that's when I realized that this is very unique. Like, not a lot of people think about this because there's only one um, paper I found. And it was like a PhD thesis of some person called Andreas Ma Mavromathis. I don't know. I it was like 19 something uh, when it was uh, published or you know given for the thesis thing. Um, and I th and then I realized that maybe these hypnagogic visuals is something about reality in itself. Like because geometry is regarded as this inductive kind of way of trying to understand the the universe and reality at, at you know. At, you know sorry. So this geometry was something very interesting because everyone who uh, hallucinates. Uh, they all see the same kind of imagery. So it is something objective across their mind. Now, what I want to do is try to, you know, get a bunch of people and, and see exactly what kind of brain activity is going on. And by doing that, I 
trying to see, you know, if there's if there's an objective brain activity there, and then somehow mold it with uh, philosophy, psychology, and neuroscience in itself is the MRI scan and stuff like that, and and also introducing how we could you know simulate this into artificial intelligence. And by doing that, we will know more about, um, you know, AI's uh, version of hypnagogic itself and just taking all of them and using a top-down processing system. So that's something I really want to do. Interesting. My brain hurts thinking about all those disciplines connected to each other, but it's super fascinating, especially um, just like the imagery that you're describing. And, and the kind of state of mind that you're um, in when the imagery is visible. Um, I mean, we could go down the rabbit hole, I guess. But, I mean, so what do you think, like, um, would be the benefit to using this approach to come up with a, a single truth, if you will? So, I mean, first of all, like, when we see hypnagogic experience, hypnagogia is when you go to bed, hypnopompia is when you wake up. But most people experience hypnagogia, these, these images and patterns. Um, and a lot of, like, artists and scientists would use for creativity and artistic um, uh, endeavors. And so... Ali was someone who would use, you know, these hypnagogic experiences to surrealistic paintings. Um, also, uh, um, Mary Shelley, who wrote Frankenstein, would also, you know, use these hypnagogic experiences for her own, like, artistic And I've seen a bunch of, uh, you know, people uh, in the past use this for creativity. So I feel like um, if, if we don't at least get closer to an objective truth, uh, we do get closer to the subjective sense of an objective truth. Um, and that logically mean a lot of things, that that could help people make their own models, which I think intelligence is, ultimately. And Yushabak uh, would agree to that. But I think intelligence is, you know, uh, your comprehension of different models, like, you know, your capacity to understand, then your capacity to create models. Uh, which is creation, and then your capacity to abstraction. So how you can abstract concepts, like how you can connect all of these theories together. That is what intelligence is. So, um, you know, when we try to understand what is a subjective truth across all objective minds, we essentially are what intelligence is at a very fundamental level. Um, because intelligence and cognition together is, you know, used for understanding what we know as reality and, and you know, physics and all of that stuff. Um, so I think it would mean a lot of things. It would definitely aid creativity. It would um, aid, um, you know, further understanding of uh, what subjectivity and objectivity is. Um, and I think even more things. I think the model is, uh, you know, applicable to a lot of um issues and we have relating to the self and, and the environment that we so interesting it, it's way outside of the the realm of what I have limitations that so I always learn so much when I hear you speak about um, like 
intelligence or uh, truth, objectivity, subjectivity. I'm always picking up on uh, just things that I maybe haven't considered in as much detail. Uh, A lot of my thinking is more, it's embarrassing to admit, but like more systems, like systematic, if you will. It's more like I can put things into categories, boxes, uh, I can map map them out, you know. Um, I can see like architecture. These are still things that I can visualize in my mind and I don't always put onto paper, but uh, some of the concepts you're discussing are more fluid or maybe sometimes um, the answers are a little bit more elusive, I guess. So, so I feel like it's it's special that you can ponder those and kind of like uh, connect dots, um, you know, between these like hmm, somewhat related or maybe unrelated, but like t- totally um, an interesting way to look at intelligence because it it seems like um, one discipline is not solving. Uh, worthwhile problems these days. It seems like like it's a number of disciplines, and and uh, and and then also we individually benefit from being versed on a number of disciplines. It, it seems like it's necessary for mm, I don't know uh, less obvious problems, I guess, or problems that have more complexity. So what shifted your focus to, like, just thinking about intelligence, or why is that something that you think that you ponder on occasion? I think I do that because um, I'm very interested in creating models, <laughs> talking about, like, models in order to break down um, these keywords that we use, right? Do is a very uh, fundamental level. Like, what is the essence of you know these these keywords that we use? And I think this is one of those things that we use all the time. Like, um, we try to understand it in terms of IQ when we're you know when we're kids and like you know youngsters. Um, we try to understand exactly what level of intelligence do we occupy? What is the maximum level of intelligence? Uh, how can a thing be intelligible? and things like that. So I think intelligence is that one component that everyone, at least once or twice or maybe more times in life, question like what is intelligence? Like is it cognition? Is it sentience? Is it consciousness? Like what is going on there? But it's none of those things. It's uh, you know a thing of itself. Um, because I would say that consciousness is at a very fundamental uh, level awareness, attention. Um, sentience is existence. Um, cognition is your capacity to like extract knowledge it's pure uh, process based uh, but intelligence on its own is this very unique capacity to create things to understand and then also to abstract in the sense to connect things to connect different so it's it's you know on its own so yeah, I think I think it's it's a very common keyword that people use in everyday life, uh, but most of the times they don't use the word uh, as uh, according to its meaning. It's more like pop culture sometimes. 
um yeah i think i think i think about it like these concepts because i genuinely do want to tell people exactly you know what these concepts are and why we should not use it in pop um, philosophy psychology whatever they're using it in because it has a lot of value because now we are trying to simulate a lot of things in like different areas so artificial intelligence trying to make like these general intelligence and super intelligent kind of models um, so they are trying to replicate intelligence onto these machines and robots um, and also software and hardware like all of these systems that they have um, and neuroscientists are trying to understand what these intelligence and cognition where these uh, areas um, coded into consciousness uh, via you know these uh, different exper experiments that they carry out so it's a it's a central scheme or a component of a lot of things uh, which is currently happening in today's world uh, in all sectors god there's so much there um yeah, so I see the I see the computer science world trying to figure out how to capture this elusive idea of intelligence, and it's interesting because it's obviously still creating new invention or more advanced iterations of the technology. But would you say that? The computer sciences are still very far away from intelligence or like what are your thoughts on yeah i think they are quite far away because so the computer science world um and usually artificial intelligence because that's the main scheme nowadays is that um according to uh bostrom's model you have um and nick bostrom was like this oxford philosopher um so it's uh you know intelligence in the sense that narrow deep ai then we go to artificial general intelligence and then artificial super intelligence so we currently have this narrow deep ai with um you know image processing uh, speech recognition all of these components at a very like basic level because we very Siri doesn't work that well um, at the end of the day like we still have to work on those things um, so general intelligence is something that we have to reach in the sense like intelligence which can um, you know at least decipher a lot of problems which are bigger than image problems and speech problems like you encode something on it which is quite general uh, and it's able to answer um, very correctly so that's that's a goal of uh, all of these artificial intelligence people to move towards general intelligence um so i think, I think this uh, the ai and super intelligence is you know this uh it's more intelligible than humans so it's like this apocalyptic nature of what's going to happen ultimately um so yeah i think i think uh, a lot of um people who are generally artificial intelligence are trying to use this concept of intelligence at a fundamental level so understanding it via philosophy or psychology um, so that they can better understand this and simulate this onto you know machines um, and I think that, that that's possible but a lot of people say it's not like neuroscientists would not agree with it um, but yeah I think artificial people 
um, hopeful that this would be the goal. Yeah, and you brought up the um, like, uh, you know, how there's different disciplines that are looking at intelligence, but uh, I, I, I agree with you that the pop psychologist um, can be a little challenging to gain any kind of meaningful insights from when it comes to like uh, a definite, like a true working definition of intelligence. Um, and you know, this is making me think about like, a, I was on a flight and I remember I was reading The New Yorker. So I was spending a lot of time in New York and The New Yorker just has like incredible, uh, just great writers. They have incredible writers. Um, but some, some of their long form stuff is kind of lame, but, but there was this, um, there was like some study uh, or some professor at the University of Texas, Austin, that was like, I don't remember if it was, she was like in biogenetics or some, some specific discipline. And, and, and she was also trying to measure intelligence, but in the U.S. context, like still across racial lines. And that, that always makes the conversation, in, at least in the States, um, super contentious. It like really holds back the research. And um, I think what she was trying to say was that she was going to do her research and it would be like uh, apolitical, which I think that's bullshit when academics say that. Such bullshit. Because most of the academics know the politics, at least on a basic level, or at least they know the mental models, or they have some type of association or understanding of like how people are perceiving things. Um, so I think not like an apolitical academic. I think that's bullshit. But but she was basically saying she would speak through the middle of the politics, and uh, and be able to. Uh, use genetics and develop a deeper understanding of, you know, to, you know, whatever the correlations are that equate to our understanding of intelligence. And, and so I think there are like some interesting lenses that psychology takes, but man, I don't know if the, the more popular psychologists are, are the, I mean, I don't know if they're the ones that should be working on the problem, you know. Because there are problems with pop psychology. Like, if you were to go on Twitter and just like type psychology, you would get one of these codes like happiness is this, you need to do this, like everything is good, like things like that. And it has no citations, like no like depth to it because it's just like this is how you should live life. Um, and it's 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 bullshit like you know no one understands why policy exists um it has a lot of dangers um i think the the realm um uh, you know a lot of different sectors um, of education or just you know the universal subjects that we have can take is um, benefit from cognitive psychology so that's where all of these components of what is intelligence what is memory learning thinking um, all of these things are very structurally, um, you know, put forward. 
And so you can like read papers on it, try to understand it at a very deeper level. When it comes to politics, because you need to have like a very direct sense. It's like you don't, you cannot, you know, take a very abstract uh, ideology and say that, you know, this forward to onto political philosophy or like just politics, because when you take an abstract concept and you try to put it on politics, uh, you know, you can dangerously misinterpret a lot of things and, and it could go very wrong. Uh, that's something that I do see happening in some right-wing uh, ideologies these days, like far-right. I'm not saying like exactly the entire right-wing um, because, you know, I, I've been noticing a lot of people um, in, in the very far-right using philosophy um, their own way to try to like interpret exactly what is going on. Um, that is also happening. I'm not, I'm not saying that the left isn't doing the same, but I'm just saying a lot more on the far right. Um, but yeah, and, and the reason I think it's happening more on the far right is conservative and traditional. So, you know, you can take those uh, ideas and not be liberal. This is, this is the agenda, so it's propaganda. Um, but yeah, no, these uh, these ideas are very important. The ones that are coming from cognitive psychology, it's it it could be used for the better. It could be used for the worse. I guess that's the thing with most of the things. But I think it has a lot of benefit because of its very structural objectivity, like what is cognition and things like that. Um, but yeah, I think it also has dangers. And, and just try to interpret it with a very traditional conservative way. Um, taking the same uh, definition of intelligence can create this very amazing model for um, these propagandist kind of, uh, you know, like issues. So, you know, like the same thing was happening with Nietzsche and I of this and they were like, okay, it's a philosophy for power in the sense it's philosophy for anti Semitism, so it can be used in dangerous ways, um, but it has a lot of benefit when used correctly. Pop psychology is completely um, bullshit. Frustrating because it gets a lot of attention. Uh, oh my goodness, it gets so much attention. Um, yeah, so I'm just thinking about what you're saying in terms of like intelligence and sentience and. Um, so you labeled sentience as existence. Uh, what are like different ways that you explore um, thinking about existence, or like are there resources that you turn to, or how do you even like get into that kind of uh, thought? I think sentience uh, came from ontology. So uh, ontology is this um, study of existence. And the way we try to understand existence is very, um, I would say, tricky. In this, first of all, conflate sentience with a lot of other things. They, thought, they think that to be is to be conscious, whereas I don't think that's the same thing. I think uh, the human mind is conscious, but also conscious, um, and unconscious because we have this uh, state of mind with life but unconscious, like when we're sleeping, like we are not, but we're alive. 
so that's the distinction there so i think to be is very distinct from to um, because you can be aware and you can be uh, unconscious in the sense you're dreaming, right? Dream, dreams also play a lot of roles. So I often think that dreams are not that much distinct from reality because dreams is just an unconscious of a conscious mind. Um, so, you know, we have this these kind of distinctions. Reality then would be just a conscious projector, um, uh, which is giving us all of these perceptual awareness auditory and other things that come uh, it come in play um there's amazing references in the sense that you can start to understand ontology by reading martin heidegger but I kind of avoid him because he was uh, very anti-semitic and a nazi <laughs> but you know he, he, his being in time is a is a book that um people read a lot you know, and it's it's a good work, of course. Uh, and then people also try to read the existentialist to try to understand what to be is in the sense, particularly Sartre, um, because he wrote this amazing book called Nothingness, where he tried to understand what it means to exist by trying to understand what it does not mean to exist. So he took that route and tried to understand. So it's a big book, but it's a it's a good book, and it's very nicely put in the sense that you can follow it well. So yeah, I think there's differences like that. You can, those two are, I think, fundamental because it's like we're going very basic of what the to be is. But yeah, no, I think uh, I think understand what it means to be. You need to definitely dive into what it means to exist at a very experiential level. So you 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 use phenomenology, which is the study of experience, in order to try to understand what ontology is. So you can take a lot of fruits, but I think that one is more beneficial. Glad this is recorded because I'm going to go back and spend some time with uh, some of these things, and uh, I'd love to. Hopefully, we can do a part two and like explore that in more detail. Is there? Um, we'll wrap this up in, in a shortly, and I obviously want to make sure that um, we kind of promote some of the places that you're putting content, but. Is there, is there anything else that is like top of mind to you that or that you're thinking of or working on or anything else that is like really important to you at this moment? It's the thing they are like the top-down processing system of understanding what um, reality and consciousness is. But like... Um, I can talk about what I was like reading this morning, right? Like I was reading Jack Lacan, who's like a psychoanalyst who basically returned to Freud. Like he took a lot of what Freud said and tried to interpret it in a quote-unquote correct way. But it's, it's I think it's mostly um, a poetic literature, uh, to say the least, because it's not testable. Like you cannot test um, most of Freud's concepts any of psychoanalysis you cannot you cannot like test it and say that's it's it's its own poetic literature so i was reading lacan and you know there's um several that he's known he's known for this boromian knot of the imaginary the symbolic and the real um and then also for mirror stage so the boromian knot of uh imaginary symbolic and the real has three registers which is imaginary symbolic and real the imaginary is this concept where we try to understand this fantastical way of self, 
um, in our desires. And that's where uh, keep a subcomponent in play, which is the mirror stage. And the mirror stage is, is a very important um, in, in psychology also. is when a, when a child is born and he sees himself or herself in the mirror for the first time. So that's when the, the child becomes aware of his body. So for uh, Lacan, there's no, uh, the ego is in the subject. So he, he is more focused on the, on the body and also on language. So when we talk about language, we come into the symbolic. Um, and the symbolic is very structured uh, in signifiers and the signified. So we have a, and it has two things, signified and the signifier. So the signifier is an image, sound, um, etc., which would uh, appear and which would have a signified, which is um, something that it resembles, a representation. Um, so we see uh, the and then we, we that's a signifier, and then the signified is the structure, like the, the fruit in itself. So signifier and the signified, and then broadly the sign. Um, so that's uh, what comes all the way under the symbolic. It's very language-based. And then the real is this um, place where one tries to understand what it means to be before the mirror stage. Uh, so, you know, how we are just aware of just our ego um, in the sense that we're able to think and we're able to but we're not sure as to what we really are. So it's it's, be, it's before mirror stage. I'm um, still trying to like get the grasp of it because it's very abstract, the idea of the real. So these are factors that form the psyche. Psyche, cannot, psyche can be bro uh, broken down into the registers according to Lacan. Um, so yeah, that's, that's something I was uh, broadly leading. Continue reading this throughout, throughout the day because it's very interesting, uh, and it's a very fundamental concept for for Lacan. That's so amazing. Um, I barely remember what I read this morning, but that sounds amazing. What you read. Um, so, I guess like where we'll leave this is like, where is the best place for people to find you? Um, they can find me, I guess, on Twitter because I'm just more active there. Um, and it is at Sanjana Singh X. Um, goes to Instagram, but I'm, I'm just more focused on Twitter because it's more like you, you share your thoughts um, more. And uh, yeah, I also have a Substack. I've not been active that much these days, but I do want to be more active this month. And it's sanjanasang.substack.com. So that's another place that people can find most of the things that I'm writing and sharing. Amazing, too. You have, like, some tweets I've ever seen in my life. I want to frame some of them. I'm going to highlight them when I post this, but um, I'm going to highlight. And actually, if you think of, like, maybe two or three of your favorites, send them to me because I'd like to share them with uh, my audience and uh, but yeah your tweets are incredible I wonder like are you just like impromptu tweeting or is it just based off the stuff you're like thinking about or reading yesterday I tweeted half yesterday or before yesterday I don't remember the half of my tweets come from my conscious mind the other comes from the notes that I make when I'm just like accumulating information, so it's 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 a 
Amazing. And your Substack, I actually read uh, your reading, and I'm not going to describe it properly. Or I read your writing, I'm not going to describe it properly, but uh, it was, um, it reminded me of like if I was at the art museum and there was just like this fine piece of abstract art on the wall. It like was, you know, stunning in a sense. And because uh, it's like there's like some technical rigor there, but then also like a kind of poetry. How would you describe your Substack or the writing you've been publishing there? And correct me if I'm completely out of my. I think I think, it, I think you get it right. Um, I think I post a, a lot of just like I would say sentences. So uh, like I think you can say broadly a four just. Uh, like sentences that are trying to encapsulate a particular idea. Um, and the reason that more is because I, I think like that more these days. Um, although I do write articles, uh, papers and stuff like that, I, I've not been doing that enough because I'm just on a year break at this point um, because I'm enjoying, um, you know, creating more things for myself. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it's um, structured like um, just Prose is a way to, to encapsulate that. Good, so I hope you get more. And um, yeah, so thanks for joining me. And um, yeah, I can't wait for everyone to listen to this. And Jenna, so thank you so much.